Mortimer, Episode 21 Thank you for tuning in to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Y'all want to listen to the radio stories? <laughs> well, if you do, you ought to be smoking some fine tobacco. Now, you write me at my farm and I'll let you know what I have in stock. Care for a cigarette? Herberger Wolfenstein held a pack out to John, who declined with a shake of his head. While John made himself comfortable in the mahogany chair that rested across from the large desk at which his boss sat, Wolfenstein lit a cigarette with a match. The room was dead silent for a breath. Wolfenstein coughed and waved out the match. I'm disappointed in you, John. Okay, John leaned across with confusion. I'll have a cigarette then. Wolfenstein snatched the case out of John's reach. This is not about cigarettes. John curled his lip in confusion. Eh, okay. What were you doing in South Carolina? The old man's words sounded more like an accusation than a question. I was trying to retrieve my nephew to convince him to step up and take his place as the Centennials. Don't lie to me, Wolfenstein thundered. John felt a twist of anxiety in the pit of his stomach. L- lie? I know you were fraternizing with the competition. What? John put on his most innocent expression, the one he'd used with Gerard's mother when they were children. It had saved him a time or two from a vigorous lashing. If Gerard hadn't been such a blockheaded idiot, he might have invented such a convincing face himself and been spared the half-dozen spankings he'd earned during childhood. I received a letter. Wolfenstein paid no notice to John's contrived look of innocence as he opened his desk drawer and retrieved a piece of parchment. From Mr. Longhorn, CEO, and president of the largest competitor to the Centennial Shipping Line. He thrust the letter across the desk at John. John scanned the single page quickly. That vicious old hag. You must realize that if knowledge of Mortimer's absence from the company leaked, we'd all be ruined. I thought I meant something to her. She used me. I need you to focus, Wolfenstein thundered. You will put the entire company in jeopardy, John. Jeopardy? Thanks to you, our number one competition has us by the throat. Oh, I know Longhorn. He won't say anything. You know Longhorn? Know him? The contents of Wolfenstein's desk trembled as his voice rose voluminously. I'm sure that this is just because his mother's a little bit put off at me for leaving her yesterday morning. What? Well, women can be fussy sometimes. What did you do? What do you expect? It was lonely in Georgetown. Though I am confused as to how a letter could have arrived so quickly as I took the train. Wolfenstein's face turned a curious shade of red. Did you sleep? 
with the mother of the owner of the Longhorn shipping line? Well, technically she's the owner, but, but after her husband died, her son... You're fired! Mr. Wolfenstein bellowed. He shut up from his desk chair and pointed toward the door. Out! Get out! But what did I do? John was genuinely confused. I, I didn't do anything. But Wolfenstein was marching around his desk now. He grabbed John by the arm. Careful, John whined. That suit is from Macy's. Pack your desk. No, don't even bother. I want you out of this building this instant. But what about my spider plant? John continued to whimper as he was dragged toward the doors. Who will water it while I'm gone? Are you sending me on another trip? Wolfenstein pushed the doors open. Mrs. Lakely, call security and see that Mr. Ascariot is escorted out of the building. He shoved John forward. This instant. It's awfully nice of you to buy me a coffee, Mrs. Albright batted her eyelashes. I hardly think it's necessary since I'm delighted to give you advice on a birthday present for Emily. Orange forced himself to smile at the older woman as she went on. Though it is highly improper for the two of us to be alone, you know. <laughs> she giggled like a schoolgirl. That's what makes it so fun. Uh, you know most of the people in this town, don't you? Mrs. Albright pouted for a moment at Orange's lack of participation in her nefarious intrigues. But sensing an opportunity to brag, she quickly recovered. She took a sip of coffee, her tapered nails clinking on the china. Oh, indeed. I can't say there is a single person that I do not know in all of Georgetown. Or South Carolina, for that matter. Orange hardly believed that to be true, but he went along with her anyway. So you should have a good idea of what's popular. Well, of course I do. I subscribe to all the top magazines from France and the United States. I, I do believe I am quite qualified to answer your question. She raised a finger toward the man behind the counter. Darling, I'd love one of those sweet little cookies you have in the glass jar there, if you please. Orange clenched his teeth. He'd budgeted for coffee, not coffee plus all the cookies she desired. While he was still receiving one more week of salary, despite his unemployment, which began a week prior, he was trying to watch his spending. Now, what kind of gift are you looking to get for Emily? Mrs. Arbright shoved her cup aside to make room for the plate carrying the cookie delivered by the server. Will this come on your tab? The server asked. Orange glanced at Mrs. Arbright, who was admiring herself in the little mirror she had retrieved from her purse. Yeah, add it to my bill. Turning back to Mrs. Albright, he went on, I'm thinking earrings. I heard that... Orange swallowed the lump that was forming in the back of his throat. I, I, I heard that this woman named Sissy had a great pair. Her hand jerked and a big crumb fell from the treat. Encouraged, Orange went on, I, I don't know what the earrings were like exactly, but I figured you'd know better than anyone. Why, <laughs> with your fashion and social acumen... Slam dunk, Orange congratulated himself. Sissy, you say, Mrs. Albright chewed thoughtfully. She moved away ages ago, darling. I'm afraid that I can't attest to her earrings. Now, Helen Perry, that woman has some lovely jewelry. Not so fast. But you do know, Sissy. He suppressed the desire to lean across the table. Mrs. Albright bristled in her seat. I can hardly say I know her. We were acquaintances in the past. 
Is it true that her real name is Matilda Hornwasher? The look on Mrs. Albright's face told Orange that he was correct. She knew something. Well, she said, taking a gulp from her cup of coffee. Oh, look at the time. She had placed the mirror back into her purse and wrapped the remainder of the cookie in a napkin hurriedly. I have to be going now. But what about the earrings? Orange stood up and began to follow her. Oh, you will do a fine job, darling. Cheerio! She burst out the door, leaving Orange staring after her. Hey, man, came a voice from behind. Don't forget to pay your bill. Yeah, yeah, Orange muttered as he went to the counter. His mind raced as the man counted his change. A massive belt of thunder crashed violently, sending vibrations through Mortimer's frame, explosions of lightning that stabbed like a silver knife across the tumultuous sky. It was only in the momentary light of the lightning that Mortimer recognized Cowlick. Bail off the port bow, the crewman ordered. Obediently and numbly, Mortimer obeyed Cowlick. He pushed himself through the wind and rain. Water sloshed ankle-deep aboard the deck, soaking his socks and soiling his cotton breeches. The boat tipped again and Mortimer's hand shot out, impotent against the real Poseidon's fury. Another gust of powerful air slammed him into the deck, causing him to slide on his bottom across the slippery wood. Mortimer's arms flailed desperately. He shrieked into the darkness and closed his eyes as he prepared for his demise. But Cowlick grabbed the back of his collar and pulled him upward. The violence of the wind pummeled and pushed. Cowlick dropped a stunned Mortimer onto the deck and returned to bailing. Grab a hold of the bow rail! Don't let ye grasp falter! Obediently, Mortimer leapt up and sprang into action. With a prayer at his bushy, moustache-covered lips, he did what he could to save his beloved ship. He wasn't even wearing a clean pair of undies, Bobby Sue moaned into her soup. Have some tea, darling. It'll do you good, Mrs. Peabody began pouring the tea. The family was sitting around the kitchen table, since repairing the dining room table had been deprioritized due to unforeseen circumstances. That woman has had so much tea, well, I ain't sure it ain't a-coming out her ears. Jeb shoveled another spoonful of potatoes into his mouth. I don't know how you can eat at a time like this, cried Bobby Sue. The police assured me that they're doing everything they can to find Percy. Mrs. Dixon suppressed her own worry and focused on the food. Millie joined them at the table, dinner plate in hand. I did see him talking to a lot of ladies that night. Any in particular that you can remember? Mrs. Dixon looked up from pushing food around on her plate. Felinda, darling, please sit down. You're making me nervous just looking at you. Oh, uh, there, there are just a few more things that I had to take care of. Uh, you all start without me. In the beginning of the night, Mortimer talked with um, Annabel McKay, Louise Harper, Mary Osterroot. Millie tapped her chin as she remembered. I don't know how you keep track of all those names. Neville took a dainty bite of broccoli. I could care less to learn the names of the townspeople. That's because you are highly antisocial, Mrs. Dixon chided, irritable at the interruption. Ah, he's a good fella. Jeb slammed a companionable hand into Neville's back, causing the butler to cough and fall forward into his plate. Jeb, darling, don't hurt Neville. Bobby Sue wiped her tear-streaked cheeks. I just don't think I can eat. It's Mrs. Peabody's best recipe. Eating will do you good, Bobby Sue. There's no sense in going hungry. 
Mrs. Dixon turned. Millie, go on. Well, um, I saw him with John at some point, and then Helen Perry, the Lakesmiths. I think he even talked with Frank Smith at some point. The man I found in the bathtub. Mrs. Dixon looked across the kitchen at Mrs. Peabody, who was scrubbing the counters vigorously for the sixth time that day. Yes, that's the fella. Bathtub. Bobby Sue's eyes widened. Was he drowned? No, 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 Mrs. Dixon quickly corrected. She shot a look at Neville, who continued dining as if no one else was present. Mrs. Peabody found a couple asleep in the bathtub. I'll bet you they was a neckin. Oh, Jebediah! Bobby Sue burst into a fresh set of tears. How can you think of that at a time like this? Well, it's a man's nature, baby, Jeb shrugged. Ain't it, Neville, old man? Neville shrank away from Jeb's raised hands. Oh, that's right. I ain't supposed to be patting you no more, he lowered his arm. We men always think about the opposite sex. Ain't I right? Bobby Sue had stopped crying, interested in Neville's response. Neville flushed, as all eyes were on him now. I'd prefer not to be brought into this conversation. Neville is too refined to think about sex, declared Bobby Sue. There is a child present, Mrs. Dixon reminded the table. Neville, I expect better from you. I don't mind, Millie piped up. What did I do? Neville shot back, encouraging such lascivious conversation. I, I did nothing of the sort. What's all the hollering about? Mr. Peabody entered through the back door. Mrs. Peabody dropped her rag and was at his side in an instance. What did you find out? Nothing yet. The police have several men searching the nearby cities. We are lucky that you graduated primary school with the chief of police, Mrs. Dixon commented. He's put in an awful lot of effort into searching for Percy. Well, this is top priority. Mr. Peabody helped himself to a pot on the stove. Missing persons aren't taken lightly, especially considering the two persons missing are relatives of the most influential families in the country. Who's that? Mrs. Binkley wanted to know. Percy, your son. Neville's tone was condescending. And Miss Lily Lou Longhorn is still missing. Oh, dear, Mrs. Peabody fretted. She's such a darling girl. Delighted to be part of the adult conversation, Millie leaned across the table. Have they asked Mr. Smith and Mr. Bernard about seeing her? You do pay attention to people, don't you? Mrs. Dixon was impressed at the young girl's observational skills. Millie shrugged. Mr. Bernard definitely had it in for either Miss Perry or Miss Longhorn. You should have seen him. Look pathetic, like a puppy dog. Huh? Mrs. Dixon looked at Neville for confirmation. Why are you looking at me? Mrs. Dixon rolled her eyes. I'm starting to wonder that myself. I can tell you that both gentlemen have been interviewed, Mr. Peabody offered. They knew nothing. I'd like to hear the rest of the names of the people Percy was with. Mrs. Peabody and her husband joined the rest of the table. Maybe there will be a clue as to where Percy went. I saw him with his parents for quite a while. Why, it's us, baby! Jeb grinned across the table at his wife. Mrs. Dixon suppressed the urge to smack Jeb across his head with the back of her hand. And then? Well, then you made him practice bowing in the front foyer. That's because the Bartholomews were coming. Mrs. Dixon's cheeks pinked. Mansour Great Dine! Jeb was amused by his own joke. Woof! Woof! <laughs> what is he talking about? Mr. Peabody whispered to his wife. Oh, that happened when you were away, darling. Uh, Mortimer was quite rude to poor Mr. Bartholomew on account of his bad breath. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, he, he, he does smell putrid, doesn't he? Mrs Peabody nodded. Yes, but it's it's quite impolite to say so. However, Mortimer, God bless him, was quite offended by the odour and invented the name on the spot. Millie giggled. That's not funny, Millie, Mrs Dixon wagged her finger. It is of the utmost importance to respect your elders. Where'd he go next? Mrs Binkley had abandoned the task of eating and was now squarely focused on Millie's recollections. I'm not absolutely sure. The party was becoming rather busy by that time. Millie looked at the faces around her. I do remember seeing him going into the cigar room. That's right. Percy boy helped me pass out tins, agreed Jeb. Mrs. Dixon was not satisfied. But you didn't see where he went afterward? No. Darling, maybe you should share this with the sergeant, Mrs. Peabody suggested. Perhaps Percy told one of those people his plans for after the party. Good idea. There was a knock on the door. Oh, who would be here at this hour? Mrs. Dixon placed her napkin on the table and prepared to stand. I'll get it, Neville interjected a bit too eagerly. If you will all excuse me. Maybe you should go with him, Mrs. Peabody put her hand on her husband's arm. What if it's the authorities? I'll see who it is. Mr. Peabody pushed back from the table. I'll take me a little more of those fiddles, if you'd be a dear, Jeb said to Mrs. Peabody. Mrs. Peabody stood up and accepted his plate and crossed the kitchen to the stove as Mrs. Dixon went on. You saw nothing else? I saw all sorts of things, Millie grinned. But, but nothing else about Percy. What about the young Miss Longhorn? Well, I wasn't paying as much attention to her. The kitchen door burst open. You're going to want to read this. Neville's voice was uncharacteristically urgent. Mrs. Dixon snatched the letter out of Neville's hand, expecting another demand for money. She read quickly as Mr. Peabody explained. Apparently some young boy was by the house earlier today trying to sell tickets to an auction at the festival next weekend. Oh, my! Mrs. Dixon burst out as she read the letter. What is it? Bobby Sue's eyes widened. Neville tried to read over Mrs. Dixon's shoulder. The boy told his father that after the door shut, he dropped all of his papers on the stoop. When he picked them up again, he must have picked up that letter by accident, and he and his father just brought it back. Mrs. Dixon looked up and met Mr. Peabody's gaze. We have to notify the police immediately. I'll head down there now. Mr. Peabody hurriedly put on his coat and hat as Mrs. Dixon folded the letter. What does it say? Bobby Sue yelped even more loudly. Is it about my, my Percy? Yes. We must go to the Langhorn house immediately. The sound of relentless knocking resonated from John's front door. What the... John pushed himself up from his patio chair as he stashed his tumbler of whiskey in the cupboard behind the box of cereal. He opened the door to see Anderson's frantic expression. What is it, old man? She's missing. What? Who's missing? Anderson silently pushed past John and helped himself into the kitchen. Closing the door and engaging the lock, he turned to watch as his friend rifled through the cupboards. You won't find it in there. Don't tell me it's gone. Anderson was uncharacteristically jittery. John moved into the kitchen, opened the cupboard beneath the sink, and retrieved a bottle labelled bleach. He glanced at his friend while he poured the amber liquid contents into a tumbler. What's gotten into you? Anderson accepted the drink and took a long pull. Why is your whiskey in a bleach bottle? In case the government really loses it. John retrieved his own drink from the cupboard. If there's a booze raid, they won't find my stash. You're mad, Anderson drank greedily. 
With this ridiculous ban on alcohol, I'm not putting it past them, John shrugged. Tell me, what's got you in such a fuss? I've just come from the board meeting. Anderson's face flushed with the burn of his whiskey. The boat's gone, John. What boat? The Arc de Triomphe, the Venus, the Teatro Colon. I've no idea what any of that means. John took a board drink. The Esquire! She was caught in a storm at sea. She's gone. Whiskey shot out of John's mouth and spat at Anderson in the face. What? A telegram arrived an hour ago. She's lost? Anderson nodded, using the sleeve of his suit to wipe the whiskey from his face. No sign of her? Anderson nodded again. My God! The centennial is in an uproar. Anderson followed John into the living area where his friend plopped down onto the couch. At this moment, Mr. Wolfenstein is working to establish communications with Cuba in hopes that the ships arrived early, and if not, well, to request that they will conduct a search party. But that's not enough, John was indignant. We should be sending rescue crews out immediately. They're working on it, John. This all happened an hour ago. Oh, that's stupid, Wolfenstein. This is his fault. Well, how is it his fault? Did he do an analysis of the weather? John was pulling at straws. You're being ridiculous. John took another deep drink, coughed and drank again. How could Wolfenstein possibly know the ship is gone? I know you're upset. We all are. Anderson tried to sound comforting. The Esquire was arguably the Centennial's finest creation. Your brother's magnus opus, if you will. Maybe the telegram was wrong. Maybe some lugubrious green sailor got anxious about a little storm and sent out an uncensored missive. If a blackout in communication for a few hours followed a telegram like that, of course Wolfenstein would be assuming the worst. Despite these hopeful thoughts, deep down, John felt a twinge of doubt. He reached into his pocket, retrieved a tab, and placed the white licorice under his tongue. The Esquire was one of the most well-known ships in existence. Gerard's pride and joy, ship among ships. She was an exquisitely crafted and incontestably beautiful work of art that rivaled the greatest ships in history. When it came to building the Esquire, old Gerard had spared no expense. The wood was of the highest quality, the windows were pristine stained glass, the floors were polished until they gleamed, the furniture was austere, the linens top-notch. The Esquire was unmatched in luxury. Originally, the ship had been intended for passengers to cruise and travel in, but time showed that the Esquire was also unusually fast, responded quickly, and withstood a storm like a mountain. Eventually, she was retired from being a full-time showboat to being a part-time display boat, accepting tours as she had in Georgetown and part-time shipping of high-grade tobacco with Cuba and other exclusive vendors. But apparently she'd been no match for all that the treacherous seas had to offer. The beautiful ship had likely been destroyed. She would be forgotten, become one of the elements, and left alone in the middle of the wide blue sea to rot and decompose. John felt a pang of sorrow. That was one majestic vessel. Yeah. What about the Longhorn cruise? The one sailing to Africa? She's as fit as a fiddle, Anderson said. They were nowhere near each other. Well, that's good, John sighed. There has to be something I can do. Why, well, there's nothing you can do. You got fired, remember? Oh, it's a technicality. I should have been promoted. Technicality or not, you're still unemployed. 
John brooded silently into his glass. You should look for another job. Anderson was stretched out on John's couch, fatigued from stress and relaxed by his drink. He jingled the ice cubes in his glass tumbler of contraband whiskey. Perhaps we both should. Forget all this and move on to bigger and better things. What else would you like to do? Uh, I wasn't made to be working class. John tried to ignore the heaviness in his chest. I'm destined for better things. Like what? I've been intended for the presidency since conception, John shrugged. While I assumed that the centennial would be my stepping stone, well, I'm afraid for its future with these unfortunate events. John couldn't even bear to state the horrible truth aloud. Or maybe you should take a vacation, clear your head. This idea lifted John's spirits a bit. Eh, you want to go to Bermuda? Travelling aboard a ship? Be serious. Well, ships have been lost before, but not ships like the Esquirer. They were silent for several moments. Anderson sat up and angled his gaze toward John, an idea having taken hold. You know where I'd really like to go? Oh, let me guess. South Carolina, John rolled his eyes. Well, why not? Gloom erased from Anderson's countenance. We can search the house together and find that certificate. What good is that certificate now that the company is in ruin? I don't need it anyway. You don't need the certificate? The company needs to be run by an Iscariot, John said simply, and Mortimer's probably elbow deep in dengue fever by now. Wait, he actually got on the Africa ship? John was quite proud of himself. I got him the ticket myself. He was gone the morning I left. So that is why you inquired about the Longhorn vessel. Anderson was smug at his friend's uncharacteristic sentimentality. No, John lied. While he did not particularly like his nephew, he also had no desire to see him killed. But no one else needed to know that. John was dead set on maintaining his bad boy image. It was simply an inquiry for the purpose of evaluating the severity of the storm. I see. With Mortimer long gone in Africa, I'm the only remaining Iscariot. If I want, Wolfenstein has no choice but to name me President. You got rid of Mortimer, so you'd be the only option left. It was Plan C. Getting Mortimer to sign his rights away would have been the most convenient route. But the stupid meddling butler prevented that. Then there was the certificate option, which failed miserably because, again, the nosy help kept kicking me out of the rooms in the house. Did they? Yes. That Mrs. Peabody can be a right bit. I remember her being an absolute delight. Oh, that was eons ago, old man. I have a memory, like an elephant, and I can remember her being divine, John snorted. So, the company's yours. Fine timing, too, John grumbled. It's ruined now. The Esquire being destroyed and the Longhorns knowing that Wolfenstein has been running things. It's only a matter of time before the investors find out. The company's wrecked. There's an obvious solution to one of the issues you raised. Anderson emptied his glass. So what do you say? About what? Going to South Carolina. Didn't we just go over this? It'll give you an opportunity to redeem yourself. Anderson took a casual drink. Clear your name with the Longhorns. What do you mean? Well, let's say the company can bounce back from this tragedy. If you are then made president, 
Assuming the centennial isn't six feet under, then you mean when I become president, John interjected. Anderson nodded. Okay, when you are president. As you said, there's still a risk of Longhorn coming out with a little secret that Mortimer never actually ran the company. There is then the risk that the investors will pull out because of a breach of centennial bylaws. Oh, this scenario is involving quite a lot of what-ifs. Look at it this way. People love a good tragedy. Consider Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare's finest work. Capitalise on the tragedy of the storm. Emphasise how the company will press on despite the loss. You can show the world your heart, compassion and love for the centennial shipping line. All the while... Strike a treaty with Longhorn to ensure they don't publicize the Centennial's leadership was temporarily run by a non-Iscariot. It was interesting how Anderson could make it all sound so simple. John was jealous that he hadn't thought of it first. But then again, this was why he kept Anderson around. If I go to South Carolina... I can clear things up with the elder Mrs. Longhorn, convince her to convince her son to keep his trap shut. Maybe even get some sort of a perk from the whole ordeal. Exactly. Anderson's spirits were quite lifted for the first time since the telegram about the storm had arrived. How will you do all that? Uh, I'm not sure, John wrinkled his nose. She is a feisty one. Are you willing to make Plan D? Tame the feisty old bag? Anderson was being coy. Yet something inside John told him that Anderson's suggestion was probably his best bet for success. John sighed and downed the remainder of his drink in one large gulp. I'll do whatever's necessary. His esophagus burned at the promise. Whatever it takes. Anderson was delighted. I'll pack my bag. Fine! John said with false bravado, We leave in two days. Learn more at www.mortimabook.com Copyright 2022 M.W. Cedars Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.